0: Welcome, boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen. This is the first inaugural episode of Gyrish Talk, your soon-to-be favorite Notre Dame podcast. I'm your co-host, Brett, joined by one of my best friends, fellow N.D. alumni, and most importantly for our listeners, an absolute
1: Notre Dame football junkie, Michael. Mike, how's it going in L.A.? L.A.'s great. Weather's fantastic. I presume better than South Bend. Went to the beach today, sunny, mid-70s. but big thank you to all our listeners. Download us, rate us, give us feedback. Um just is any any form of love that you guys can give us, we we'll, you know, we'll appreciate it. Before diving into our first ND football topics, we want to spend a couple minutes previewing what this podcast is about, why we're doing it, and the format of the show. Uh first and foremost, this is a Notre Dame fan podcast. As Brent mentioned, we're alumni. We absolutely love Notre Dame football. We read, listen, and research it constantly. We go to multiple games every year. And now we're bringing that love to this podcast. Yeah, I know Michael and
0: I, we already got tickets for the USC, uh, and Wisconsin game. So pretty excited for this post pandemic to get back in the stadium. And, uh, you know, the tone of this podcast, we're, we're going to try to combine a bit of the old with a bit of the new. Uh, you know, we're part of the fan and, and alumni base that loves tradition, loves nostalgia, uh, reading up on Lou Holtz, Rockney, Eric Perseguian eras, but, we're also a little bit different. We're, we're millennials. We grew up in the Davies, Willingham, Charlie Weiss era. And, you know, interesting for us, Brian Kelly's first year as Notre Dame's coach was our freshman year. So, you know, we've we kind of lived and breathed the Brian Kelly era as, as adults. So forgive us, Father, for we don't know what we don't know. And, and we don't know what a Notre Dame championship feels like. But we also know Notre Dame needs to evolve, whether that's jumbotrons and field turf you know new coaches new coordinators new offensive schemes new recruiting approaches um and we also know analytics really matter and that's that's something we really like about football
1: yeah i mean as brett said we're going to talk about numbers all the time we're we're very comfortable with numbers um you know not to go down into too much detail here but brett and i both you know have like backgrounds that are very like numbers heavy something that we just like love getting into um You know, and I think like even when we talk about independence, we're going to get really, you know, to some extent, we'll we'll get into the details. We're not going to shy away from that. We're going to get into TV revenue, contracts. Um, I work in media, I've worked a bit with some sports rights deals. So, to the extent that I can add some value there, you know, maybe not like obviously not insider information, but to the extent that I can kind of give a perspective from someone who's worked on them, you know, uh, you know, I'm going to go there. When we talk about opponents, we're going to be referencing, um, you know, advanced statistical like measurements. We're, you know, I'm thinking like SP plus FEI. Um, and then when we preview our roster, we're going to talk about havoc rates, 247 recruiting rankings. So, so this podcast is going to strive to combine a bit of the old, the traditions, the history, the nostalgia with a bit of the new, new ways of thinking, coaching, playing and analyzing Notre Dame football.
0: Yeah, and I'd say, you know, the other thing that we really want to focus this podcast on is being positive. We, we love Notre Dame football. It, it brings us together with family and friends. Um, it lets us tailgate. Um, you know, there's heartbreaking losses along the way, and, and that sucks, but a, a lukewarm beer at Finney's can fix just about any Notre Dame loss. And these last four years have been incredibly fun four straight 10 win seasons. Um, and, you know, at times, like, we'll get on Brian Kelly, we'll get on the coaches. Um, but especially when it comes to the players, we, we view this as 18 to 22 year old kids and we're their fans. We love celebrating them and cheering for them. And in return, they, they bring us a lot of fun. So really want to focus on, you know, keeping the, the vibes positive, uh, in this podcast.
1: Definitely. Yeah. And I, am with, with Brett on that a hundred percent. Um, again, this is, it's supposed to be fun, you know? I mean, at times it can get frustrating, but like Brett said, these, you know, at the end of the day, these are just kids. Um, you know, I think kind of moving into like What our, our game plan here is with this podcast As we move more into the season um, we'll, I think as we get more into it We'll focus more on re- game recaps and previews And also, you know, we will also step back For a big picture topic or two each week um, But for these first two shows uh, We're going to focus on a season preview And, uh, you, you know, really just discuss The off-season's biggest headlines So, with that being said uh, Brett, should we dive in? Let's do it So you didn't make the dress list there are greater tragedies in the world. I wanted to run out of that tunnel for my dad to prove to everyone prove that I worked. what?
0: For... All right. So this week we're going to dissect the offensive side of the roster. Who's got something to prove and who's going to be running out of the tunnel come September?
1: Biggest headline in summer camp is clearly the QB competition. So last week it was announced that uh, Jack Cone, will, he's officially the starting QB. We are all Coneheads right now. Uh, at first glance, there's some uh, some negative reactions from Irish Nation on Cohn being named the starter. You know, I wouldn't say that that's, you know, from everyone, but th- that, you know, that part of the fan base certainly is out there. Um, for some background on Cohn, he transferred from Wisconsin after losing his starting job. Uh, number 469 recruit in his class, you know, so I think a lot of fans are thinking he's, uh, you know, just a one-year plug before transi- transitioning to the future um, and is more of just a, you know, quote-unquote game manager. Um, in a later episode, we'll we'll take a deep dive into Kelly's track record of QBs. But as a preview, Ian Book and Tommy Reese, hands down, the two most productive QBs we've had in the Kelly area. Uh, not very highly touted, though. You know, and I don't think that's news to um, to any Notre Dame fans. Book was the number 512 recruit in his class. Tommy, number 421. So you know, Kelly has a track record of turning supposed game managers into really solid QBs at the college level. Um, going back to Cone, you know, I think his. Uh, you know, his transfer isn't, you know, it's not the same as many other transfers that we see out there. Um, this is a guy who started 18 games for the Badgers, took them to a Rose Bowl, threw for, you know, 2,700 yards and 18 TDs. Uh, but then he got injured in fall camp last year. You know, there wasn't like a big drop off in performance. Um, he, he simply just got hurt. Wisconsin happened to have their, you know, mega recruit, the number 65 recruit in the class, Graham Mertz. Um, and number three QB uh, in the nation from a recruiting standpoint. You know, by Wisconsin recruiting standards, uh, this guy is basically Arch Manning. This guy is, like, the, he's, he's the QB of the future. So in these situations, you know, as you know as we've often seen, um, as soon as you hand over the reins to that QB of the future, it's really hard to hand it back to the old guy, right? I mean, some of the recent examples of that are, you know, Kelly, Bry- Kelly Bryant at Cle- uh, Clemson um, losing his spot to Trevor Lawrence, you know, never got it back, Um and, you know, I think just this, this narrative around red flags, just because he transferred from Wisconsin, it just overall just doesn't really fit the story. It's not, it's not Golson or Wimbush transferring, you know, because they just fell off. Their level of play um, really wasn't to where we needed to be. Cone was, was very productive and he hasn't shown any signs of, of dropping off.
0: Yeah, I, I 100% agree. I mean, I'm, I'm really pumped about Cone. Big body, six foot three. And, you know, if, if you just look at his stats as a first year starter at Wisconsin, he, he completed 70% of his passes. Um, that's highest among Kelly era QBs. Book was 68%, then Kaiser at 63%, Reese at 61%, Golson 59%, Wimbush, uh, at 50%. Um, you know, and then 18 touchdowns to five interceptions. Um, that's a 3.6 ratio. Um, that's also highest among Kelly-era QBs. Book was 2.7, Kaiser 2.1, Golson 2.0, Reese 1.5. So, you know, two very important stats for a QB, complete passes and, and protect the ball. Um, and now, you know, the other thing, you know, we'll get to in a second, but a lot more talent around him in the receiver room and especially the tight end room um, at Notre Dame than, than he had at Wisconsin. So for an Irish team that lacks returning production, um... You know, I think having this experienced, proven quarterback, um, even if this is a game manager, even if this is sort of the bridge to the future of Tyler Buchner and Drew Pine, who I know you're going to touch on here next, but um, it seems like it's the right quarterback for this team for this year. Um, I think he's a really great fit for the program and, and a really good find by the coaching staff out of the transfer portal.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think just one other thing I'll add to that real quick is, you know, um just just because, you know, someone was more of a game manager um at one point doesn't mean they can't take that next step, you know. Uh AJ McCarron is a good example of someone who um, you know, early in his career in Alabama, definitely fit that that role of a game manager, but, you know, his last season, you know, he was an extremely effective QB. Um and you know, I don't think anyone anyone would question that. Um but yeah, moving back, you know, Brett, I'm glad that you mentioned Buchanan and Pine. Um, you know, I think you know, I'm glad that we avoided this, like, long drawn out QB battle. You know, I'm, I'm glad that we're, like, avoiding potentially, like, a, you know, uh, a, you know, Drew Pine, um, Jack Cone, uh, you know, QB timeshare. You know, I, it, it yeah, you know, I just wouldn't be too psyched about just having to refer to ourselves as Pine Cones all year. You know, just, <laughs> uh, not, not my favorite. Uh, wouldn't be my, my, wouldn't be a highlight of the season. I thought, for me. I so, thought
0: Coneheads was already going to be cheesy. That's, that's awesome.
1: Yeah. But so you know, obviously, again, neither got the starting job, but um, both both have shown some flashes. And I mean, I do legitimately feel like you know this this seems like as deep a QB room as we've had in a while. Pine, Pine you know, was a top 300 recruit, number 225 overall, sophomore. Um, so he's got you know a little experience, but four years of eligibility remaining. The one knock is is that he is a bit undersized. Um, and a lot of recruiting notes mentioned his arm strength was an area for improvement, but really good mechanics, really smart player. Was one well in the pocket. And, like, frankly, you know, I think there have been some videos out there that have suggested that maybe his arm strength has, you know, has improved a bit. So, um, you know, again, another point, though, is that he did very well at, at the Elite 11. So, and this is a guy who you feel very comfortable, you know, I think overall, uh, you know, as a backup, as a QB2. Now, uh, looking to the future, Tyler Buchner, a really interesting story here. Top 100 recruit, number 71 overall, as high as 28 at one point, and was, you know, right at that five-star level Um, unfortunately towards ACL in the opener of his sophomore year. And then he didn't play at all last year due to the COVID pandemic. The California season was basically thrown, thrown for a loop. And he, uh, you know, he he suffered from that. So here's a guy who he only he's really only played 13 games in the last three years. Um, and it sounds like the coaching staff doesn't want to rush him in. They want to bring him in slowly. And, uh, as expected, you know, there might be a bit of a steeper learning curve there just because of the lack of reps. Um, you know, all that being said, it seems like the rust has come off with him, you know, quicker than expected. You know, Kel it seems like reviews from Buchner have been have been positive. I thought, you know, he looked pretty good in the spring game. Granted, you don't want to put too much stock into the spring game. But um again, overall to kind of uh circle back, Pine and Buchner add good depth behind Cone. Two high ceiling guys, you know, and we I think we should expect a neck and neck QB competition heading into the twenty twenty two season next year. Um you know, all that being said, Brett, you wanna you wanna kick off the running backs? Yeah, I mean, closing
0: out the Jack Cohen piece. If you think he's a game manager, the the best friend of any game manager's uh, two great running backs, and you know that that's what we've got. In you know, Kyron Williams comes back, rushed for eleven hundred yards last year, thirteen touchdowns. Came in definitely under the radar. He was the number twenty four running back in his recruiting class. He's he's three sixty seven overall, so you know, not a top three hundred guy. Um, but I think what gets missed or, or in the very least should be highlighted a ton. One, um, out of the backfield, nine yards per catch last year. He's a very dynamic receiver. And, and two, um, he's a really good blocker. He, he really broke his way into the lineup last year and the year before because he, he's great at picking up blitzes. He's great at, uh, seeking out linebackers coming through the gap. So. You know, as, as we think about a season in, in which there's a lot of turnover at the offensive line, which we'll get to in a minute, Tyron um, is a great safety blanket back there in pass protection as well. Um, and then Chris Tyree, probably, you know, one of the biggest recruits that Kelly's had at, at the skills position. Number one, all purpose back in his class. Number 70 recruit overall. You know, he's, he's got verified sub 4-4 speed. Um, this guy is a big home run threat. He, he rushed for 500 yards last year um frankly probably needed more carries than he got um and that was as a freshman so you know thinking about him stepping up is really a one-two punch a lot of what camp um interviews from Tommy Reese is being talked about is how do you get them on the field at the same time right both these guys need snaps both these guys need touches um but I you know I believe out, out of other than maybe Kyle Hamilton I think this is our strongest position group um, in, in in on the roster, uh, probably one of the best two one two running back combos in America, um, and I don't say that lightly. I'm not trying to oversell these guys, but when you're returning 1600 rushing yards, um, that's a lot of production coming back for a team that doesn't have a lot of re- production coming back. We're we're replacing our big receivers, um, and Javon McKinley. We're replacing our quarterback. We're replacing four starters on the line. I really think the running backs. Um, are going to be a room that we need to lean on heavily as workhorses. Um, you know, Notre Dame averaged 250 passing yards last year and 200 rushing yards per game. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably got to flip this year. I think you really got to see the physicality come out from, from the running back room. And and I'd also highlight this is a deep room. Sebo Flemister, um, not really getting a lot of headlines in, in camp, but a senior coming back. Um, two freshmen, Esteem and Diggs. Um, we mentioned esteem in the intro. That guy <laughs> looks like an absolute, um, animal, um, in, in the backfield. And then Logan Diggs has been in every highlight reel, um, for all the practices open to the media. So, you know, Logan Diggs also almost like Kyron Williams, very under the radar, was not recruited heavily. Um, but you know, a really, really good early signs for a, for a freshman running back. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mike, you want to take us to receivers and tight end?
1: For sure. I'll just make one quick note on like the on the backs. Yeah, I mean it's pretty remarkable what this this running back room has become. I mean, I'm just looking at like you know uh, leading up to last season. You know, it was, a, it was a complete unknown. You know, and I think people were pretty. We had Tyree coming in, but you know, no one no one expected Kyron to make a jump that the way that he did that he did. And I think looking at where, where we are now, it's it's a pretty dramatic uh, turn of events. You know, to kind of uh, have have a room with, with such a wealth of talent. Um, so. But yeah, it feels so. a lot
0: like Josh Adams. You know, Kyron really reminds me of Josh Adams, under the radar recruit. Um, I'm looking it up. Adams was 305 in his class, um, so you know, not not the biggest recruit out there. Number 26 running back. Yeah. Um, and then he just turned beast mode, and you know, Kyron's got a lot of those qualities.
1: Yeah. For agreed, agreed. Um, so yeah, moving on to receivers and tight ends. Tight ends. I think we can just spend 15 seconds on this. Similar to like running back, the running back position. This is like a position where we just have like a, you know, an elite talent, um, and we pretty much know exactly what we're getting. I mean, it's also, it is also possible he could take another jump this year, which is scary, but, you know, I'm I'm talking about Michael Mayer, you know, the, uh, baby Gronk, as, as they like to call him on, on broadcast TV. But, um, you know, he'll get his own segment by the end of the season, but, uh, look, the guy was a consensus five star recruit, number 32 in his class. Uh, for some context, that's the third highest ranking for an ND commit since the 2013 recruiting class, which came on the, it you know, came right after the uh, you know the uh, twenty twenty twelve uh, you know national championship uh, title game run and um yeah and he's lived up to the hype. I mean I think you watch him on the field it's it's immediately apparent that he's a mismatch. Forty two catches a year ago. it's going to be a massive target for Cone. Um, I think my, my biggest watch out is that he needs to find the end zone a little bit more. Only two last year. That's fine. I mean he was a freshman right. But this year you know he's going to become increasingly um, increasingly so an integral part of the offense. He needs to be a big time target. And uh, find, find that pay dirt more frequently if, it, you know, if Andy needs to, you know, if we're going to get to 10 plus wins.
0: Yeah. And flipping to the receiving uh, room, you know, two words stand out to me um, a lot of talent and a lot of questions. You know, Kevin Austin, top 100 recruit, he's been either in the coach's doghouse when he was a freshman, then he's battled injuries the last two years. It seems like every year he's, you know, the next great receiver. He's the next, you know, Claypool or Miles Boykin or uh, Mike Floyd and then Braden Lindsay top two hundred and fifty recruit speedster, you know, runs a four, four, he's had hamstring injuries the last year. So, you know, between those two guys, there's just not a lot of production there. Um, I think Lindsay comes back with 18 career catches and I think, you know, Kevin Austin's maybe right around that number. So there's a lot of potential, um, but they haven't done it yet. And so when I look at that room, um, you just don't see much past that. Avery Davis, he was a named a captain, um, slot guy, good safety blanket, but quarterback turned defensive back, turned running back, turned receiver. Um, he's just not a guy that's going to go out and be a thousand yard guy a season. He's, you know, going to get you a third down conversion at a big moment, mm-hmm. but he's not your home run threat. And then after that, it's just potential kind of everywhere. Lawrence Key, a lot of potential, top three in a recruit, but senior who hasn't really broken out. Joe Wilkins was a big target for Ian Book last year in some really big moments, but you know, seven forty-two recruit in his class, I'd say similar to Avery Davis. He's not going to be a thousand-yard receiver. Um, and then some really exciting young freshmen, um, three in the top three hundred, led by Dion Colsey uh, and then Lorenzo Styles and Jaden Thomas. But Kelly hasn't really ever gotten big production from freshmen. You know, last year we saw with Jordan Johnson, who actually wound up transferring out. He was a top hundred recruit. Um, sounded like there was maybe some issues in the classroom, maybe some issues off the field where he was kind of in the doghouse, um, with the coaches and and just never got on the field. So, um, I I get a little excited from what we're hearing from the beat writers. You know, Pete Sampson, Eric Hansen have, has really been hyping Kevin Austin. Yep. Um, Brian Kell's used the word transformational to describe just the physicality of this room compared to last year, but it's a really big unknown and it it just kind of takes me back to, New quarterback, maybe a game manager type in Cone, maybe not. Yeah, but th- th- this offense, I think, really has to go through Michael Mayer on the passing end and and the rece- uh the running back to coming back in Tyree and, and Kyron Williams.
1: Yeah, no, I mean the receiver room is it's a very interesting position group. We, I mean, certainly there there's enough there that I I don't think either of us would be surprised if you know if we have an exceptional year from that position. But um, yeah, there's not we don't have a lot of like evidence currently to where we could just assume that you know. I think it is encouraging hearing all these rave reviews about Austin. I think I forgot who the beat writer is, but you know, I, I saw something, uh, on Twitter. There was a, there's a, you know, a a guy who's new to the ND beat and he saw Kevin Austin for the first time and he was, he was blown away with him. He's like, wow, this guy is like a physical freak. So, you know, clearly it's, 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 it's encouraging that we're getting these same, you know, kind of like, you know, headlines about Austin that we've gotten in the past. Let's, you know, we just have to hope that he, you know, one, that he's healthy and and two, that it translates, you know, on game day. Um, so yeah, I guess for, for wide receiver, it's looking better, but you know, stay tuned, you know, um, if they, if they do reach their potential, you know, I think that'll be, that'll be a pretty big deal for us, um, in terms of like the prospects for this year. So all that being said, um, you know, lastly, uh, last position group to talk about uh, is the offensive line. So, uh, and this is a big one. So let me just say, I think the offensive line will be make or break of the season. Um, I think we have more notes and content on this group than we do on the rest of the offense combined. So tricky thing is we only have one starter coming back, but there is a lot of talent there. This group could be, you know, I think like the range of like possibilities for this group is it's all over the place. It's very wide. It could be everything from elite to a rebuilding year with a full transition. The, you know, the daunting, intimidating lines of 2017 and 2018 are now gone. Uh, you know, Hansey, Mustafa, Bars, Eichenberg, Banks, McGlinchey, Nelson. Um, that's seven guys. That are starting or likely starters in NFL rosters?
0: Yeah, so I guess just flipping to who's on the roster right now Jared Patterson, the one lone returning starter. Um, he's going to be locked in at, at one of the interior spots. It sounds like maybe center. Um, he was just named captain. Um, probably not a first or second round pick. Um, I got a buddy who follows the, the draft really closely. Alexi, shout out to you. Um, I'm told he's a late round pick. i not sure. Um, but pro football focused, him Gritt is the fourth best running back, uh, sorry, run blocker in college football last year. Um, so for an offense, you know, again, I, I keep hyping on this. Running game, running game, running game. Bringing back a top five run blocker. Um, I think really important. Um, the two other spots that are probably most locked down, Zeke Correll and Josh Lug. Um, you know, this is an example. We're, we're talking about returning production a lot and we're talking about how Notre Dame is, is lower this year. Um, in large part because a lot of other teams are probably taking advantage of the extra COVID year of eligibility more so than Notre Dame is, and we're not getting Correll and Lug counted as returning starters, quote-unquote, but, uh, you know, Lug started eight games in the last two years. Um, Correll came in um, and stepped up in some big games last uh, last year as well. Um, you know, staying on Lug for a second, not the best in the run game, but in the past game, he graded out as uh, 83 on pro football focus. Um, anything above 80 is considered elite. So, you know, Lug doing a really good job there. Yeah. And and what we're hearing out of camp is that Lug has been, you know, full on beast mode. Um, there was a day where he completely beat up Isaiah Foskey, who's probably our best defensive end or, or edge rusher um and Lug is winning that matchup so makes you feel really good about
1: uh at least one of the tackle spots yeah right. I'll just I'll just interject like yeah. quick point right here too Ke- like uh Lug is like another he's a guy that Kelly has also singled out you know in the off season a guy who he says like kind of remade his body you know so i think i think you kind of throw that in and it's you know i think how his performance so far is very consistent with um you know kind of Kelly has said, you know what Kelly has said about how he's um improved in the off season and and really put himself in a position to 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 you know to hit these results that we're already seeing in fall camp
0: absolutely and, and you know just touching on zeke for a second top 100 recruit um which for center is pretty unusual um, a lot of times the top 100 recruits are, are more likely to be the big lanky offensive tackles um so feel really good about zeke's pedigree he's played in big games um he stepped in last year um including in the rose bowl and patterson went down um with an injury so um, that, that's three guys that are coming back you feel good about.
1: Right. And then, you know, and then the big transfer, uh, Kane Madden for Marshall. Um, but, you know, this guy's not, not just someone who, um, you know, doesn't, you know, has, hasn't, hadn't really like, you know, put it together where he was at before. This is a guy who was an All-American last year. He was the number one guard, number one overall run blocker, according to Pro Football Focus. Um, now the one, one knock on him is that he's a bit undersized, so may not project as well to the NFL. Um, but you know, this, look, this isn't the NFL yet. This is is still college football and, you know, he's a gritty veteran with 31 career starts. So, um, and the pro, like again, the pro football focus grades don't lie. This is someone who, you know, who who does bring real production.
0: Yeah. So that's, that's four spots. We feel good about Madden, Corral, Lug, Patterson. Um, that fifth spot seems to be up in the air. Um, I think it was Blake Fisher was dealing with a concussion last week. So he's been in and out of practices. Um, Rocco Spindler's been playing in there. Um, Spindler was number 60 in his recruiting class. Um, I mentioned Fisher. He was number 55 in his recruiting class. And then, um, you know, they're, they're both true freshmen. So expecting, you know, a true freshman to come in, um, likely at right tackle. Um, pretty big ask. Uh, the other guy on the roster that stands out, Tosh Baker, sophomore, number 100 in his recruiting class. So that's, You know, three guys that really stand out um, as blue chip recruits that at least on paper um, should be productive. You'd think that, you know, out of those three, whoever kind of steps up, um, you you feel good about them winning the spot. And I'd just say Spindler sounds like he projects more to an offensive guard. I I think that makes me lean. It's Blake Fisher and Tosh Baker kind of fighting for that other tackle spot. Um but you, we're not seeing much out of camp yet about who's who's going to solidify that. It sounds like Jeff Quinn's moving the guys around a lot. Um, and so I think in the next week or two, we're, we're going to keep seeing news um, out of camp to really try to get a better picture there. But right. it feels like it's a little up in the air for that fifth and final spot.
1: Yep. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, ultimately, where does that leave us? Uh, you know, we had to make a lot of justifications for why this, this line will be elite. There's a transfer to the system, likely a true freshman starter, which is, you know, frankly, you know, unheard of with Notre Dame's offensive line and, uh, and two guys that have, have made st- spot starts, but, uh, relatively limited experience. Um, this isn't, you know, a power blocking scheme where you, where you line up and hit guys, guys too. So, you know, we'll do a deeper dive later in the season on Notre Dame's zone blocking scheme, but, you know, basically the system requires a lot of chemistry, communication, and, and history, you know? So, um, ideally you have, you know, a number of guys in the line who've, who've worked with each other quite a bit. So, if we drop an early game, no, oh, God forbid. If we drop an early game like Florida State, it's very likely, you know, a, a key reason is we're looking at this group and saying that you know they haven't meshed together yet. Um, you know, I think that chemistry with so many moving pieces is, is going to be a key storyline for this season, um, especially in September. You know, however, if you know if they if they if they've meshed together, you know, much better than expected early in September, you know, I think that bodes pretty well for the rest of the season. Again, this is like a line that has like a lot of talent. So if they can figure it out. Uh, I think that raises our ceiling quite a bit. Um, so, yeah, we'll see. You know, again, interesting position group, wide range of uh, possibilities. Um, and, you know, it, we, I, you could easily make a case for for it going, um, you know, help, helping us lead to an elite season. You could also make a case for it, you know, uh, causing us to have a bit of uh, an off year.
0: So stepping back, looking at the offense as a, as a whole, Mike, what are you most excited about? What do you think is our biggest strength? Um, what has you the most worried?
1: Yeah, I mean, so I think biggest strength, I, you kind of hinted it, hit it at this earlier, Brett. I mean, I think, you know, I think Michael Mayer, um, I think he just, like, brings a certain element. There's a certain certainty and uh, element that he brings that, um, you know, I, I don't think you, you'll you really be able to find at many other college football teams, uh, you, know, you know, across the country. You know, I think he just, uh, the guy's just, like, you know, a mismatch, right? Like, there's, like, you know, there's really, like, no great way to... To kind of like you know scheme for him, so you know I think you know I think you know I could see I I would be surprised if he didn't have a very big year in terms of like you know you know I guess like a slightly different way of like you know approaching this question too is like you know now which which one has me like most excited I'm finding myself increasingly a little more excited about like the receiver room I think some of the reviews out of camp are you know they're starting to get the hype up for me a little bit I don't want to buy into it too much you know I think it's you know I. I can think of many times I've, you know, heard uh, a lot of hype for certain players going into the fall and then it doesn't quite live up, but kind of all that being said, you know, I think I am, uh, I'm I'm starting to kind of like buy in a little bit. So we'll see. And then most worried, I think just because of the stakes offensive line, right. I think, you know, if they don't put it together, I think that that really like could uh, torpedo our season.
0: Yeah, I, I tend to agree. I mean, the, the, one thing I'd add on biggest strengths um really pumped about Tyree and Darren yeah. Williams. I, I think strength to us is, you know, if not Michael Mayer, it's it's those two guys are running back. Um, you know, you said you were most excited about the receivers. I think they just got me worried because they, they, <laughs> they haven't done it. So I'd, I'd maybe flip that on its head and, and you know, just uh, kind of not sure what you're going to get out of Kevin Austin, but agreed. I mean, every highlight out of camp is, you know, comparisons to Claypool, comparisons to Boykin. So, um, really high praise. I, I don't want to put too much stake in that until I see it, you know, under the lights against Florida state. But yeah. um, that's certainly what it seems like the coaches are, are most pumped about. So with that, uh, let's turn it over to our next segment.
1: You're five feet, a hundred and nothing, and you got hardly a speck of athletic ability. And you hung in with the best college football
0: team in the land for two years.
1: Now that we know the offensive line stands taller than 5 feet nothing and 100 pounds, let's review the uh, the other best teams in the land and, and preview Notre Dame's 2021 schedule. We'll flip through each of the 12 games and then answer some overarching questions on the season.
0: Yeah, and I, I really break this season up into three parts. I, I kind of view it as a September warm-up um, and then a five-game gauntlet against probably the toughest part of our schedule and and then what seems like a pretty winnable November Um, starting with those September games, um, Florida state, Toledo, Purdue to start the year, um, Florida state second year under Mike Norvell. Uh, we'll do a deeper dive on, on our FSU preview show in a couple weeks, but this team was a disaster last year, major roster turnover. The transfer portal did not, uh, treat them kindly. You know, Norvell's in year two at Florida state, but it seems like he's already on the hot seat. Um, you know, Flip side of that, the the one transfer that I think is making a lot of headlines is McKinsey Milton at QB, uh, transfer from US uh, UCF, Heisman candidate in 2018, had the really really bad leg injury, um, but he was an elite quarterback when he was healthy, um, you know. So just playing an opener on the road in Tallahassee against a team with you know still a decent amount of blue chip talent, to, despite the transfers. Um, it's, it's not going to be, you know, cakewalk, but pretty winnable, um, in the opener. Um, I saw the early Vegas lines has this as a eight point favorite. Um, and ESPN predictor says we should win this one 72% of the time. Um, and then Toledo, uh, this is one of the heavy favorites in the map, um, in elite offense. They were 13th in yards per game last year at nearly 500 per game. And they bring back a lot of talent. Um, we're going to say this about a lot of teams now coming back from COVID. Every player gets an extra year of eligibility, and a lot of teams are taking advantage of that. Toledo is one of those. Um, Eli Peters, dynamic QB, um, but still just a really big talent gap, right? You're you're playing Notre Dame with four and five stars, and Toledo is going to be out there with three stars. So ESPN says Notre Dame wins this one 90% of the time, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if Toledo – um, comes out as a really good group of five football team this one uh this year and, and keeps this one close at, at least early on. Um, Purdue uh, two and four last year during COVID um, they basically started quitting games at the end of the season and, and I'm not trying to undersell why they did or didn't um, play due to COVID um, protocols, but after starting two and four they um, forfeited or postponed games against Indiana and Wisconsin and never made them up. Um And they only return nine starters. So in a year when a lot of teams are bringing back 15, 16, 17, 18 starters, um, they don't have a lot coming back. Um, they have both their quarterbacks starting, um, coming back. They split time last year, Jack Plummer, Aiden O'Connell. Um, likely expect one of those guys to really lead this offense um, and put up some big numbers. But this defense was very porous last year. Um. And then on offense, they only generated 80 rush yards a game. So they're going to rely heavily on their pass game. Um, but it feels like they're going to have to put up a lot of points to stay with people and aren't going to be able to control time of possession. Um, ESPN has us winning this one 85% of the time. So, you know, right there, I think you got to start three and oh in September. Um, Florida state hardest matchup in there, but, but then two, two pretty winnable games at home, but before we get to the gauntlet.
1: Yep. And, you know, I think, uh, again, like these games are, you know, they should be warm-up games, right? I think if we sh- if we are struggling in them, then that, that you know, would potentially be a red flag, you know, for the rest of the season. But, yeah, ideally these games are just, like, they help our offensive line get their feet under them, you know, help our receivers kind of get a little bit better chemistry. Um, but, yeah, so, you know, hopefully hopefully these are kind of, like, a good, like, warm-up for, as Brett said, the gauntlet. Now, moving into that, uh, you know, it's four games against top 20 teams in a five-game stretch. And this is the part of the season that will make or – frankly, it will just make or break the season, starting, you know, with the big one, Wisconsin. Uh, Soldier Field, uh, I'll be there. Brett will be there. Uh, you know, Wisconsin actually finished one spot ahead of Notre Dame in ESP Plus in, in, in 2020. Um, you know, but the, interestingly enough, the vintage Wisconsin run game wasn't wasn't there. Uh, mega recruit Graham Mertz, you know, the, the guy who stole the job from Jack Cohn and, uh, you know, led to his transfer uh, to Notre Dame was was lights out from from the gate. Um unfortunately he got COVID and then he, he didn't quite look the same coming back. Now, which Graham mertz are we going to see this year? Is it going to be the one who, you know, flashed, you know, great potential and was really productive at the beginning of the season or are we going to see the one who, who struggled down the line? You know, I don't it's it's hard to say. You know, I don't think we can uh, you know, a freshman who, you know, struggles after getting, you know, COVID and is sidelined. I don't think that's something that's like, you know, too surprising. So, you know, frankly I could kind of see it uh go either way. I wouldn't be surprised if you know, if he, uh, you know, if we saw the, the grand merch that we saw, you know, early in the season last year, um, but you know, I think you know this Wisconsin team does have a lot of question marks, and uh, we didn't really learn a ton in 2020 um, overall. I would say they project to be a solid top tier Big Ten team um, with a track record of being a tough tough team to beat. You know, that's that's who Wisconsin is. Um, I, I will say I'm a bit surprised that they have a sort of 60% win probability. That feels a little generous. Um, I would have thought the game is more of a a toss up 50, 50, um, you know, at least like some of the like Vegas odds I've seen put out there, you know, over the last few weeks have, have tended to kind of, you know, some of them even put Notre Dame as like an underdog in this, you know, but overall should be very close. Um, yeah. And then after
0: that, uh, we, we come home to play Cincy, um. This is a really good football team. They were number eight in the SP plus, uh, last year. They bring back virtually everyone, um, except their defensive coordinator who Marcus Freeman is now on Notre Dame sideline as our defensive coordinator. Um, but th- this is a top 10 defense. Um, their quarterback Desmond Ritter, he's garnering NFL attention. Um, I don't know if I see, uh, Desmond Ritter as this top NFL prospect. You know, their, their offense was, um, okay. You know, football outsiders had them as the number three defense in the country, but outside the top 30 in offense. So, um, you know, clearly a lot of good talent coming back, top metrics um, in, in a lot of the advanced statistics, and arguably the toughest game on Notre Dame's schedule other than the fact that it's at home. And so whenever you're playing at home, whenever you have a talent mismatch, um, you know, at least from a recruiting perspective, um, that should make you the favorite um, ESPN gives Notre Dame a 73% win probability in this, but, you know, just to put that into context, that's the same win probability that ESPN gives us for Florida State, and Cincy's a, a much better team. So I, I think of, you know, any game on the schedule that, uh, is given, you know, me concern, um, uh, of, of where an L might show up. Um, Cincy at home after a big letdown game, um, you know, after Wisconsin at Soldier, um, circle this one on, on the calendars is as, as one to, to keep your eye
1: on. Yeah, I would agree. 73% feels feels generous. You know, if you were to ask me which, which game I'm more nervous about, uh, Cincy or, or Florida State, it's pretty obvious Cincy is the one that I, w- I would be more nervous about. So, Absolutely. Um, yeah. And then moving on to the next game, uh, Virginia Tech on the road. Uh, so I'll, I'll be brief on this one, uh, but Justin Fuente and Virginia Tech are, you know, they've been, they're heading in the wrong direction. 2019 was a strong eight-win campaign. Then last year was five and six. SP Plus did have them as 27, Um, And they lost some close games. Braxton Burmeister, the Oregon transfer, he'll be the QB this year. But first career, 55% completion, more interceptions than TDs. Um, You know, I'm a little skeptical if this team steps forward. Uh, It is on the road in Lane Stadium. You know, that always gets a lot of attention. Enter Sandman. You know, I think, frankly, in recent years, that's a bit overhyped. I think, you know, if you look at Virginia Tech of, like, 10 years ago, I think that that was you know I think that that was more of an intimidating uh, road environment, but uh, you know ESPN has us winning this game sixty one percent of the time, about the same as Wisconsin. So so you know who knows.
0: Yeah, I I forgot the stat that Kirk Herbstreit once said about Enter Sandman, but it's something like they didn't win at home since Mike Vick in a primetime game. So I, I agree, you know, Lane Stadium gets a lot of credit with with their hype and tradition, but hasn't always um been there in in the spotlight um in, in, in the big game. Um after we go to Blacksburg, uh we'll come back, we'll have a bye week and then USC. Mike and I'll be back at that game. Um undefeated in the Pac twelve last year until the the Pac twelve championship game. They they lost by a touchdown uh to Oregon. Keaton Slovis comes back at quarterback. Um, you know, we play a lot of good quarterbacks on our schedule this year. Um, I mentioned Desmond Ritter. Uh, we'll get to Sam Holland in the next game. Keenan Slovis might have the best arm, like just pure arm strength that, that we're going to see this year. Um, they put up 33 p- points per game last year. Very, very dynamic offense when it's on. Um, however, really inconsistent. Um, they look bad against Pac-12 competition for stretches of games. Um, so a lot of talent. Um, but, you know, once again, you're going to see Clay Helton constantly in the hot seat. It it seems like he's really got to have a, you know, big 10, 11 win season, um, to, to really get back that fan base. And, and a lot of it's going to start with, uh, consistency on the offensive side of the ball. Graham Harrell, um, the former, um, Texas tech quarterback is back as their offensive coordinator. He instituted kind of his version of the air raid system last year. So makes a lot of sense on why they were inconsistent. Um, but I think that's going to be something they need to do, um, to, to really step up. Um, and they finished 13 in SP plus. That, that was ahead of Notre Dame. They bring back 16 starters from last season. Um, and so, you know, once again, th- this feels like on a neutral site, this should be a toss up. Um, however, Notre Dame's at home. We've won three in a row in this series. Um, and so ESPN's actually given us a 79% chance to win this game. Um, uh, again, it may be a recurring theme on this, this schedule, but feels a little skeptical that Notre Dame beats USC 80% of the time, um uh, when, when you're looking at just the sheer talent that USC has that, you know, should go toe to toe with Notre Dame. Um, but the advanced, uh, metrics like us in this one.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think anytime you got a QB like Slovis, I think, you know, that's, that, that'll make anyone nervous, right? I think, you know, this feels like a classic post Picarrell USC team to me, you know, just, they, they, you know, if they're really good, you know, and they, they go on a tear and they win the Pac-12, you know, that wouldn't be, that wouldn't be too surprising. Like they do have like enough raw talent there to do that. But, you know, like, like all the, like all the USC team, most of the USC teams in the last like 10 years, they've just been, you know, very inconsistent. Like one year they're good, one year they're not. Many seasons, like they'll flash like one game and look really good. So, you know, there's enough there to be nervous. You know, Notre Dame needs to show up. Um, but, you know, I think, I do think like if, you know, if Notre Dame plays well, I think generally because we've been such more consistent and we're a much more stable program, you know, I think, I think we should be, you know, I think we should be able to like handle them. Um, now, you know, it's round round out the gauntlet. Um, UNC comes into ND stadium on, on Halloween Eve. So top 15 squad a year ago, Sam Howell, um, you know, you're going to see his name all year. He's a Heisman contender. And this team also has 18 starters back. Um, I think Mac Brown has clearly, you know, upgraded this program. They're in an upward trajectory. Um, Back to back top fifteen recruiting classes, so you know this is a there's a depth and talent for UNC that you you know I don't think you've seen recently. Um, you know, however, you know there there are some knocks on them. The O line was 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 pretty bad in pass protection last year, and uh, despite Howell's incredible numbers, the team revolved around the running game last year. And both of those guys are you know they're they're playing on Sundays now. Um, now, as like a bit of a reminder from last year, you know, we they played us pretty close in the first half in Chapel Hill in Chapel Hill, but you know, uh, as the game went on, we we pretty much just brought down the hammer and I think anyone who watched the second half saw that we were clearly a better team. Um yeah, I, think we fan-
0: pitched a, I think we pitched a second half shutout in that game. So I mean, you know, just, just that sheer dominance yeah. makes you feel good having that same matchup a year later.
1: Right. It was just, clear, it was just watching that second half. It was very clear that we had that game in hand, right? It was, um, yeah. I mean, I think it's, uh, you know, we'll see what, how, you know, how Howell plays this year. You know, if he's playing at like, a you know, a Joe Burrow level, you know, maybe that makes things a little bit different here. But I think overall, I think certainly like, you know, I think we, we still have the edge over him. And, you know, ESPN, you know, they agree with us. they they have us winning this one 65% of the time. Um, needless to say though, you know, UNC is still posed poised to be a 10 win team. And not an easy out. If we don't show up, this is definitely a game that we drop.
0: Absolutely. You know, and the one thing we maybe didn't hit on there, but all four of those big games are at home or, or neutral site. The, the only one on the road in there is Virginia Tech. So, you know, very tough schedule with four top 15 teams in a five-game stretch over six weeks. Um, but for them at home um, hopefully gives us an edge in, in some of those games when, when we probably need it the most. Yeah, and that gets us to November. Um, you know, if the train's rolling, Notre Dame gets there at 6-2, 7-1, um, maybe 8-0. You, you feel really good about these last four games, and, and we'll hit on each of these very quickly. But Navy, um, you know, 97 in SP Plus last year. That um, Their coach, Kenny Amadololo. Um, obviously runs the option scheme. They they were very strict in their COVID protocols last year, did very little practicing in pads or, or you know, live drills, and, and it showed. So this is a team that hasn't played a lot of football, literally, like other than the games um, in, in almost two years now. So it feels like a rebuilding year for them. Virginia, number 55 in the SP Plus last year. Um, should be a winnable game. They are a sleeper pick um, in, in the ACC Coastal by, by a lot of beat writers uh, covering ACC football. So maybe that's a surprise in Charlottesville. It's on the road. Um, Georgia Tech, number seventy-five in the SP Plus, feels like they're still um, under Jeff Collins transitioning away from from the option and, and really re- retooling that entire program. Um, so not sure I feel you know too worried about that one either. And then Stanford, they were number 60 in the SP Plus. Um, and this just isn't the same Stanford program anymore. You know, one of my biggest hot takes from four years ago, I, I wish we were doing this podcast in December of 2017, but um, Stanford's recruiting fell off a cliff. Um, if if you recall, college football switched the early signing period. They, they moved it up to, I think, November or December. Um, yep, and December. Stanford... December and Stanford refused to change their admissions process. So Stanford doesn't participate in the early signing period. And as a result, they just keep whiffing on four and five star recruits that are just going to go in the early signing period somewhere else. So that same level of top 15, top 20 recruiting classes um, under David Shaw, under Harbaugh that that you really just grew accustomed to hasn't been there in Palo Alto now for four or five years. and, And it's really starting to show. So, um, you know, we play this team on the road, but this just isn't the same Stanford program um, that was there five years ago.
1: Um, yeah. um I'll, I'm going to make one other quick note on that. I mean, you know, we're going to dive into, like, recruiting as a topic, you know, in more detail, you know, uh, other episodes. But, you know, I think, like, frankly, this has been to, like, Notre Dame's benefit. I think, you know, a program like Stanford that's an elite, like, academic school and was, you know, performing at such a high level on the football field, like, that's not good for NDs recruiting, you know. I mean, you can, like, they're – are there's only a select like number of like recruits that are um you know elite football recruits and also you know very academic focused um and so when you have when you're competing with a school like Stanford that's doing it at just as high a level as you are it makes it a lot tougher to recruit these guys so you know i think uh again as i said i think this has helped Notre Dame out a lot i mean i don't think that's why we're seeing like you know the big uptick like right now uh, you know obviously a lot of that has to do with Marcus Freeman but i think like certainly this helps you know I guess, you know, Northwestern is on a little bit of an upswing, but it's not nearly to the extent that, like, you know, Stanford had, um, you know, when you, when, you, when you were at the Peak Harbaugh years and, and Shaw years. And we've
0: really stepped up our recruiting in California especially. Yeah. Um, you know, we talked about him as maybe the quarterback of the future. Tyler Buechner um, comes out of the San Diego area. Um, C.J. Williams uh, went to Modern Day High School, which yeah. has produced a lot of recruits for USC, Stanford, Notre Dame, and, and C.J. Williams um, top 300 recruit that that just committed um a week ago um so we're getting a lot of california talent and and we're getting them a lot from those you know big-time california prep schools where it used to be we're going up against stanford usc and notre dame um are the three schools going after these kids now it's notre dame and usc and usc's coaches on the hot seat so um, yeah, yeah i think a l- lot of benefits from there um but going back to that november schedule You know, ESPN agrees the win probabilities say we win 97% of the time against Navy, um, 67% against UVA on the road, 89% against Georgia Tech, and 73% against Stanford on the road. So a very winnable uh, November schedule for for the Irish. Um, And, you know, this is a team that's really grown accustomed now three, four years in a row, um, really finishing the season strongly. Um, Seems like that's, a real possibility this year, depending, you know, where we sit seven, eight games into the year, stepping back, just, just taking stock then of, of this schedule. Um, Mike, what, what's got you the most worried?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think we, we talked about it, but that six week stretch with five games against, you know, teams that are all top 27 and SP plus last year, including four that were top 15. Um, these are all winnable games. Like these are games that I think like, you know, in a vacuum, Notre Dame will win most of the time. Right. I could see them going 5 and 0 oh in that stretch. I could also see them going 2 and 3 or god forbid 1 and 4. It's not none of these are outside the realm of possibility. We talked about it in the roster preview. I think you know, I think the offensive line will determine a lot. Do they gel quickly? You know, does that recruiting talent on paper translate to production on the field? I think, you know, I think if we get a consistent offensive line, I think that that generally tends to speak to a level of consistency within within the team. So, you know, I think if they can figure it out, quickly i think that that um i'm gonna feel a lot better going into that but you know i mean like a stretch like that mentally you know it's not easy it's you have to be locked in every single game i you know i wouldn't be surprised you know there are going to be a couple games in there where you know we're probably going to look a little off right we may have like a shaky first half right and um you know we're gonna have to like you know hope that we respond or that you know we you know don't like you know in some cases give up you know too much of a of a cushion to the other team in the first half to where we can't come back but uh yeah, you know, we'll see. You know, I guess another thing we'll have to like check at some point is like in that stretch when when do midterms like fall, right? Because that's like another thing. If you throw midterms in there, like I think yep. any Notre Dame fan knows that that you know I think that just that's just like another thing that you can just you know throw into the chaos that like makes it that much harder for our players. Yeah, um,
0: I, I think that's the bye week this year, Um yep. at least on one end of it. But certainly coming back from midterms will be the USC game. You know, the, the other thing that's got me really worried about, we touched on all of them individually, but just collectively, the opposing quarterbacks we play, um, there's easily four guys that could, you know, be going in the top three, four rounds of the NFL draft that that are going to be opposing QBs this year. Desmond Ritter, Keaton Slovis, Mackenzie Milton, who knows if he's healthy or not. Um, Sam Howell, for sure. Um, Graham Mertz at Wisconsin. Um, those are guys that can sling the football. Um and, and, you know, it's, it's something, you know, with Ian Book, did you ever feel like we had a Heisman, you know, caliber player when we were going up against Trevor Lawrence? Like, no, sure, like Trevor Lawrence was a better quarterback than Ian Book. I'll admit that. yeah But it felt like in most games, um, number 12 was the better quarterback on the field. Um, that's not going to be the case this year. Maybe it is. Maybe Jack Cohen surprises us. Maybe, you know, Pine or Buechner really step up and surprises us. But we're going up against some veteran-proven quarterbacks on the other side that it's going to make for tough games. You know, it's going to make for the other team having some big playmakers. Um, The other one that just stood out to me is just an oddity in this schedule is the ESPN win probabilities. I just don't get it. Um, ESPN says Virginia Tech is our toughest game. Um, ESPN thinks Florida State, Stanford, and UVA are all tougher than Cincy. Um, Now, I get those are road games, um, and Cincy's at home. Um, but that just doesn't add up to me, you know. To, to me, Cincy, USC, Wisconsin, um, those are the hardest games on the schedule. UNC as well, and, and even just despite the home field advantage, um, I'm having a little bit of a hard time trusting some of those probability numbers.
1: Yeah, no, I'm going to be curious as we get closer to that, like you know how the how the Vegas odds shake out, and you know Absolutely. if there's if there's a big mismatch between that and like what ESPN is projecting. So with all that being said, with this preview, uh, Brett. Final question: uh, What's your win projection? Yeah, you know that's
0: that that's tough. We've we've talked about you know a lot of toss up games in here. I guess just to frame it, SP plus predicts Notre Dame goes seven and five this year. Um, Vegas has the over under at nine and three. Uh, more money's going on the over right now. Um, some of if you take all of those ESPN win probabilities, that has us at seven and a half wins. So. Somewhere between seven and nine wins are what the, the data is saying. Um, you know, my instinct just tells me this program is recruiting really well. We're really deep. Four straight 10 win seasons. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of the advanced metrics like SP plus are putting too much weight on returning production. I I mentioned that a couple times earlier. Um, I think they're really discounting guys like Zeke Corral and josh log that have been in the program have started games but you know maybe don't get quote unquote counted as a returning starter right um so i I tend to feel better about where we shake out um, as a record um relative to say seven and five um but i do want to set expectations with irish fans this team could go seven and five and still play good football um I think nine wins feels about right. If if you told me that I had to take the over-under on nine, that, that's where the Vegas line's at. Um, I'm going to take the over and, and go with 10 wins and, and get to a fifth year of, of, of 10 straight wins, but um, I don't feel good about that bet.
1: Yeah, I think you read my mind. Uh, yeah, I mean, frankly, like, 10 wins is, is, is exactly what I was thinking. I think um, I'm with you on it. I think, like, the returning production is, like, overstating – like, you know, uh, how good some teams are, certain teams are going to be this year. Um, You know, I think another good point that you mentioned is, yeah, I mean, look, like, we have, like, a lot of turnover, but, you know, one of the guys that we have coming in at QB, like, he has a lot of really good experience at Wisconsin. Like, there's a certain floor that we're getting with, like, Jack Cohn. It's not like, you know, I think, like, the the risk element there is not the same as it would usually be with, like, a new QB coming in. Um, And then, you know, the same goes for someone like Kane Madden, too. This is a guy who's been very productive. You know, he's not... Not just like some guy who's completely unproven, you know, a lot of questions. It's someone who, you know, at the least, should be a very solid performer. He's an all-American. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, yeah. like, look, look, not many. It's not often that you get someone like that that you can just kind of you can just slot in. Um, you know, all that being said, yeah, it is a riskier year. I think this program has demonstrated that uh, they're pretty adept at, at developing players. Um, I think over like this this past run of like you know four or five years, you know, we've really. Uh, We've we've really, like, shown that when we have these questions in camp, we've generally been able to answer them. You know, I, there haven't been too many instances I can think of where, you know, we've just completely failed in a certain position and, and been completely exposed. You know, I think, you know, we're getting incrementally better each year, but some positive signs are already, you know, coming out. You know, like we, we already talked about the receivers. It sounds like they're getting good reviews. We'll have to see how that, you know, plays out on the field, but that seems like a good sign to me. Um, and, you know, on the offensive line, there's enough there. To where you know, I wouldn't be surprised if they're like a very good unit. But again, I do think there are more questions this year than you know than there was certainly was last year. So um, while I my gut tells me ten wins, kind of like you, I wouldn't be surprised if you know you know maybe this year is a little more maybe this year is a little more challenging than expected. You know, I do think another element is is like our tougher games. You know, kind of like you mentioned, they're at, a lot of them are at home. Right. But none of these teams are like, you know, they're not Clemson or Alabama or, or or even Georgia. Right. Like we don't have like one of those games where I'm going in. And I'm like, yeah, we're frankly, we're probably losing this game, you know, so we don't have any. There's no one game that's like that. So um, all of these are winnable. And I think that's like another element that kind of, you know, I think it's causing me to lean more towards uh, towards 10 wins.
0: So that's, that's it, folks. Ten wins, that's the projection from Gyrish Talk. However, sounds like that's a very uh, soft take at best um, and, and one we uh, maybe don't feel great about. So with that, let's go into our final segment.
1: And you're also going to walk out of here with a degree from the University of Notre Dame. In this lifetime, you don't have to prove nothing to nobody except yourself.
0: Well, I actually might have something to prove. Um, in our first uh, Notre Dame obscurity or stat of the week, um, we're going to try to end each episode with you know a, a short segment on maybe something the average fan doesn't know about. Um, I'm a bit embarrassed. Um, I have no clue what this topic even was in, until Mike started talking about it. So, uh, Mike, I'm going to turn it over to you. T- tell us about the uh, original Notre Dame mascot.
1: Yeah. So for those of you who are, who are not aware, um, you know, I think. You know, certainly in my lifetime, all I've ever known is is the Notre Dame Leprechaun. But, um, you know, there was a period, particularly, you know, many would say the golden age of Notre Dame football, uh, we actually had a different mascot. And that mascot, uh, is, is Clashmore Mike. So just, I'll give you like a quick, like, overview of the history of it and kind of like how he came to be and then how he actually got phased out. But, um, Clashmore Mike was a Irish Terrier dog mascot for the Irish. And he was actually selected by Newt Rockney back in 1924. Um, and he was part of like, you know, that whole run from 1924 all the way to 1966. So pretty good run for Notre Dame football. 12 titles in that time frame. Um, in terms of, you know, how, in terms of like a little more detail about, you know, who these dogs were, what, the, you know, what their names were, the very first mascot was named, and I'm hoping I'm getting the name right here, but it's Tipperary Terrence. And, uh, unfortunately he, shortly after being named. Terry 19- the
0: Terrier? Really? Terry the hey, Terrier was the name yeah. of the dog? Yeah. yeah.
1: I didn't name him, you know, <laughs> but that's, Gosh. you know, yeah. So, uh, but he died, uh, unfortunately, very sadly, shortly after being named uh, the mascot in a car accident. And so then oh, he no. was named. And then, you know, after that, it was Tipperary Terrence, second uh, Terry again. Uh, so he was, uh, the second one was in in the fall, was named in the fall in time for the N.D. Army game in New York City. And so that was in October 1924 um really big game this is when army was you know like a, a you know a very very strong program um but uh that's actually the game where the the ND backfield was immortalized with the four horseman moniker so um for those of you who are looking like connections with you know, with, the, with this old mascot and some of the you know uh heroes of of your you know this is uh this is one of those connections um but you know a little more of that season ND went undefeated they won the title that year it's also the same season that they went to uh Stanford and played in the Rose Bowl. And if you look at, like, the picture, the team picture um, that they took right before that Rose Bowl game, um, the holder uh, is a guy named Elmer Layden, uh, one of the four horsemen. He was actually holding the dog, and then he went on to be, like, the game's hero. Got, like, three touchdowns. They won. So, you know, clearly a lucky charm. Um, and I think, you know, it set, like, a pretty, like, strong, like, precedent that year. You know, over the coming years, more pictures were taken of players and coaches, uh, you know, this, this dog was increasingly embraced by the program as the program continued to ascend. Um, in 1934, Emil Layden, the same person who was holding the dog in that Rose Bowl game with the four horsemen, um, became the coach, and he was a big proponent of the Terrier. Um, you know, I think he so, – I, frankly, I think he saw him as a big lucky charm. And the Terrier actually rose to new prominence. This kicked off, uh, I would say, like what was the golden age of this mascot. Um, the golden Layden age a- of the Irish Terrier. Exactly. And Layden actually renamed – so – this is kind of where you circle back to Clashmore Mike. Bladen actually named, he was the one who renamed that mascot Clashmore Mike. So from that point on it was no longer Terry the Terrier, it was just Clashmore Mike. And um, Gotcha. Yeah, and this golden age is through like his coaching um, duration from, you know, 1934 to 1940. Again, he continued to pose in pictures and magazines. More prominently though, I mean, this was like a big part of the culture of the program. Um, like if you looked at like columns in like Notre Dame newspapers, uh, you know, you'd have an opinion piece by Clashmore Mike, right? It was, it was like almost like you'd have like kind of like a, you know, this invented personality for the mascot. Um, and so, you know, the first Clashmore Mike, um, you know, unfortunately, he passed away at one point, but, uh, you know, the, the rumors, he, he actually was buried under the turf in the stadium. So. You know, this is. I think this is a little bit... Sorry, uh, not
0: turf. It was natural grass back then. Natural night. grass, just, yeah. Just for all the old alumni. <laughs> yeah. This is not under the turf. It was under the natural grass of, you know, 1934. Got it.
1: Yeah. So I think, you know, I think this is a little bit of like a happier ending than like, you know, like Jimmy Hoffa, for example, being rumored to be buried under, what is it, like the Meadowlands or something like that? I don't know exactly what it is, but, you know, this is a little bit... I think this is the more heartwarming story. So anyway, when, you know... After that, you know, they, they, they kept like, re, you know, they would replace, you know, uh, like the mascot with a new terrier as, you know, the prior one passed away. But when Frank Leahy came in, he was someone who had uh, a lot of tradition, a lot of respect for the traditions. Um, he wasn't like looking to, you know, really like change a lot of these. He wanted to like uphold them or even like enhance them. So um, with Clashmore Mike, he actually had the mascot take on more active roles in the games. Like he would, he would train him, you know, teach him like different tricks. Uh, there was a rumor that he actually trained this dog. To, uh, to be able to run onto the field to delay a game, uh, to get another timeout. However, he never actually used it, but apparently the dog was, was capable of doing that. Ready to go. It, Put it, me if in. If so yeah. And, and then, uh, Clashmore Mike, uh, unfortunately, I don't know. I'd say unfortunately, but like, you know, he was replaced by the registered trademark of a leprechaun in a fighter's pose, which we all know today in 1966. And, you know, so while it is a, is a, is a shame that, uh, Clashmore Mike has kind of been lost to uh, to history. Um, I don't think anyone would argue that the uh, the replacement logo and, and mascot has not been a, a resounding success. So,
0: I, I mean, if you're gonna go and win twelve national titles with with Clashmore Mike and Terry the Terrier, um, I'm all for bringing them back. But but really appreciate this uh, deep dive research, Mike. I I definitely learned something. Um, maybe I'm the only one that didn't know about Clashmore Mike, but. Um, I think uh, there's something to this. I think we got to go and get Jack Cohen, uh, an Irish Terrier, and, and get him on the field. But yeah. um, with that, we'll we'll wrap up this uh, first episode. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. And we'll be back next week to, to cover the defense and all other uh, news and notes out of the offseason heading into the opener against Florida State.